In Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I don't know how many times I've thought about this. I cannot imagine that when Eve was first given that information about not eating from the fruit of the tree, and when she was analyzing whether or not she should take the fruit that looked pretty good on that tree as she was talking to the serpent, I don't think it ever entered her mind what she would experience down the road because of it. I don't think it had crossed her mind that one of her own children would rise up and kill another one of her children, that a brother would kill a brother. Within the most intimate sphere that we live in, which is the family, that a hatred would take place where it would lead one person to take the life of another. I cannot imagine that when this happened, what Adam and Eve must have experienced, knowing that if they had not eaten that fruit, this never could have happened. When we read the warnings of Scripture and we recognize that we're not supposed to do different things, we don't often have the foresight to look down through that path, to things that are going to happen that we never had any idea that that's what it would look like if we followed that path. You know, I was uh, watching a podcast just yesterday on this guy. He's a neuropsychologist from, from Canada, a very intelligent person. He was talking about uh, psychological impacts on people, and he said who you are today ought to take into account who you're going to be down the road. He says the decisions that you make today impact what kind of person you're going to be in the future as you face other things. What we often don't see is what kind of a monster we can be in the future if we follow a certain path because it will begin to shape our character and impact us now. I just can't for the life of me think that Eve, when she was thinking about eating that fruit, was thinking, you know, this might lead to one of my sins killing the other one. Somebody that doesn't learn how to control their anger. You don't look down the road and see them beating up people that are closely intimate to you. Nobody ever takes that first drink thinking, I'm going to be an alcoholic. Nobody ever tries that drug for the first time thinking, my goal in life is to be an addict. 
Nobody goes and plays those machines that first time thinking, I'm going to risk my financial future. I'm going to end up being addicted to this game that's going to cost me so dearly. The person that, that in, in, indulges in pornography the first time doesn't see the bondage that's going to bring them into and the negative way that it's going to impact their relationship and the way that they view women and, and also the lack of being able to experience the intimacy within their relationship where they should experience it because of the damage that will be done through that activity. But that's exactly what we're seeing within our society. That's exactly what we're seeing within the first society, even the first family as the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin take root. But you know what? It's, it's, it's not all black. Even as we spent the last couple of weeks looking at the, the effects of the fall and the results of the fall, this passage actually continues more of the same. We are still going to see some more of the results of the fall. We're going to see death. But we're also going to see redemption as we look through it as well. And so as we continue to kind of follow this thread of death and redemption through this story, well, I want to look at it from several different aspects. There's things that I can learn personally from my, from my own life and overcoming temptations and struggles. There's things that help to shape our worldview. And then there's also things that we apply to the community. As we consider worldview, there's three things that this passage teaches us. The first one is our propensity to worship. Notice what we see in both Cain and Abel. Both of them have a propensity to worship. There's, there's just something in us that worships. And you know, I think that if you're dealing with the issue of worldview, what is this world like? Why is it here? Where is it going? Is it going anywhere? Is there purpose? Is there no purpose? This is one of those things that you've got to answer. You know, I often think about that when I, when I talk to people that deal with the world as a naturalistic response. In other words, there's a natural reason for everything. All there is is nature. There's nothing supernatural. There's no God. Everything came from nature and is part of nature. And I have this huge question. Then why do people worship? If we're just a product of nature, why are we so religious? I mean, all over the world you find it. No matter where you go. I don't care if you're in the jungles or the concrete jungles. People are worshiping. They're not all worshiping the same thing. They're not all worshiping the same God. But there's just something in people that makes them worship. If we're all just products of natural chemical responses and things, then where do we get this supernatural idea of worship? It can't come from just natural processes. And the answer that I get back often is this. Well, before we didn't know as much as we know today. And which we don't know nearly as much as we think we do. So when we saw things happen, we didn't know what made those things happen. So we came up with superstitious answers for why that would be happening. But to change the word from religious to superstitious doesn't really fix anything. You still have the point. If they're natural beings, where do they get this concept of a supernatural being? It can't come just from natural processes. And so this propensity to worship, as you look around the world and see people worshiping, all over the world. That has to be answered for within a worldview. The image of God within us creates that longing and that understanding that there's more out there. In fact, the Bible even says even those that refuse to glorify Him as God actually deep down within inside know that there's a God. I had a friend that was saved in a foxhole in Okinawa in the war. He would often point out there's no atheists in foxholes. <laughs> when it comes right down to it, you find atheists praying. <laughs> Because deep down they know there's a God. 
We have that built right into us. But then not only do we see a propensity to worship, also see a propriety in worship. And, and the reason for that is because when Cain and Abel both bring this offering to God, we notice that two things happen. One, Cain's offering is rejected. His and Abel's offering is accepted. There is an acceptable worship of God, and there's a not acceptable worship of God. God accepted the worship of Abel. He rejected the worship of Cain. In Christianity, it's not us working up to God. You see, in every other religion in the world, uh, it's, it's about us achieving, about us doing these things, going through these hoops or going through these processes to get us to God, us achieving, getting up to God. Within Christianity, it's the opposite. Is It's God coming to us. Not us climbing up to Him and achieving Him, Him stooping down and picking us up. Now, what is proper worship? One of the possibilities is that it was the manner in which Cain came. Abel took the first of his flock. He took the fat portions from that. He was uh, taking the best that he had and bringing it before God. But with Cain, just as a Cain brought some of the product of the ground, some of what he grew. Remember, Abel was a shepherd. He was keeping watch over the flocks. Cain was a farmer. He was growing things out of the ground. But it just says with Cain, it says, well, he brought some of, some of what he had. So there's really nothing there to tell you. What, is it the best that he had? Is it not the best that he had? Well, I don't think that that's the reason. I don't, I don't think it's because he wasn't putting his heart into it. I don't think it was, it was because he wasn't maybe as sincere or that he didn't give it the priority that Abel did. I, I think it was what he brought. I think he knew to bring better and he brought something different. Because with Abel, we see that he's bringing this lamb. And the lamb is killed. Its blood is shed. And when we think about where we just were with the Garden of Eden, what happened there? They were supposed to die, but God had mercy on them. But the way that God had mercy on them was what? That a lamb was killed. The blood was shed. The innocent died for the guilty to provide the covering. And if we look a little bit later on, we're going to continue to see people continuing to offer sacrifices. And there are going to be blood sacrifices. When Abraham goes up, takes his son Isaac up to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, Isaac says, where's the lamb? That's what they always sacrifice, a lamb. Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. But they knew it was going to be a lamb, a blood, a death sacrifice. I'm nigh on to positive that that's the problem here. There are, now the reason that I hold back a little bit is that as you read up into the law that God gives Moses, there are other sacrifices that are brought. There's the sacrifice of the first fruits where they would bring the first part of the harvest and bring it to God. And it was a offering to God where he said, God, thank you so much for this harvest. We know that there's a whole bunch more out there in the field just waiting for us. The first part's going to you. But you know, up until that point, I don't think we see the first fruits really. The sacrifices that we see are the blood sacrifice, the innocent dying for the guilty, the blood that's shed. And the Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So you see what the problem with Cain's offering is boils down to this one thing. You see, in Abel's sacrifice, it's a picture of what Jesus Christ would do for us. When he walks along the banks of the Jordan River and John the Baptist is baptizing people in the river, he points to Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. 
All throughout history, they've been offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, which the book of Hebrews and other places point to and say, those are pictures, those are shadows, those are copies of the real thing to come. The real thing to come is the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, of Himself, the innocent dying for the guilty, shedding His blood on that cross for us. So when Abel brings his offering, he's celebrating what Christ is going to do for us. I'm not saying that he sees it clearly, but he's celebrating the innocent dying for the guilty, and my sins are forgiven. Well, Abel keeps the sheep, so that's part of his realm that he's bringing. Well, I think Cain says, why can't I bring my realm? My realm is the plants of the field. I think on my way home from seeing my granddaughter, I listened to four messages that people preached on, on, this, on this passage on, on my way home. Pastor after pastor, preacher after preacher stood up there and said, man, I bet you that fruit basket from Cain was awesome looking. I bet it was beautiful. I think they're right. The reason that I think that is because in the end, when it's rejected, Cain's mad. So you see, the other, the other option is that Abel really cared about it. Cain didn't really care very much. But that, I don't see that in Cain. It looks like Cain cares. He's, he, he's mad that his fruit basket wasn't accepted. Abel brought his sheep. He keeps the sheep. He brought a sheep and he's accepted. I bring a fruit basket and I'm not accepted. And he is put out by it. But what does his sacrifice represent? As we pointed out, Abel's sacrifice represents what God does for us. The innocent dies for the guilty. Cain's sacrifice is completely different. It is... God, this is what I do for you. These are the works of my own hand. I grew these. I worked in the field. I toiled by the sweat of my brow. Remember, we're not saved by the sweat of our own brow. We're saved by the sweat of Jesus' brow as he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. God can never accept you based on who you are and what you can accomplish. God can only accept you through what Jesus Christ did for you on that cross. Because that's where he paid your debt. The sentence of death that is upon us, that's where the sentence of death was overcome. There's an appropriate worship. And the only appropriate worship is to come on the merit of Jesus Christ, on the merit of the innocent being the substitute for the guilty, and I am washed, I am cleansed. I remember when I first started going to church, I was completely the other camp. I was with Cain. I knew that I'd done some things wrong, but I didn't see it as all that big of a deal. Why wouldn't God accept me? Just like Cain is. Why won't God accept me? Look at this fruit basket. This is awesome. You see, I figured God would accept me because I was, I was an okay person. I was, you know, I haven't killed anybody. He can never accept me based on my own merits. That is just a very light look at my own sin. When I recognize that every sin that I ever committed was an open-faced rebellion against an eternal, almighty God, now it takes a different picture. Now I understand why Jesus died on that cross. It's because without Him dying, without the innocent paying for my guilt, I've got to pay for my own guilt and I'll pay for it forever because I've sinned against an eternal God. And so there's an appropriateness to worship. We see that in the, as the New Testament points back to Abel in different passages. Both of them in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Notice that point, by faith. When Abel came, he wasn't saying, I raised this sheep, I accomplished this for you. It was just by faith. He knows that as he trusts God, the innocent will die for the guilty, and he's delivered. 
So as by faith the offers of God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. In Hebrews chapter 12, and verses 22 through 24, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, that's the point. We come to God through sacrifice. It's, it's, not, it's not as visible as it used to be. Because if, this was, if, if we were back before the time of Christ, we'd come before God and we'd come with a sacrifice. We'd be towing a sheep, pulling it with a leash. And we'd drag it before the priest and he would cut the throat of that sheep and pour the blood into a basin, go sprinkle it on the altar. Without this shedding of this blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Repeated over and over millions of times throughout history. But you know what? When we come now, we still come through sacrifice. But it's the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. None of us is acceptable before God. None of our worship is acceptable before God unless it's coming through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so when we put our faith in Him, we don't don't bring sheep anymore. Why? Because He is the sheep. He is that sacrifice. That is the only appropriate way to come before God. But you know what? There's one last thing that we see in this concept of worldview. There is a propensity to worship. There's an appropriate worship or a propriety to worship. But then there's also something that we see down throughout history that started right here with Cain and Abel. And that is the persecution of the righteous. You see, the Bible in the New Testament also... In, in Matthew chapter 23, also looks back at Abel and his relationship to Cain, and it recognizes that there's something that happens on a much larger scale down through the ages. And that is that ungodly man will kill righteous people to make themselves look better or feel better about themselves. We see it down through the ages, and we see it starting with Cain. You know, Cain's all mad because he's not accepted. And God comes to him and he says, look, do what's right. You know what's right. Just do it. If you do it, you'll be accepted, right? Cain, rather than taking that advice, decides to get rid of the one he's compared to. As if that's going to fix it. Getting rid of the guy that did it right does not mean that you've done it right. Leaving you as the only one left, not that he didn't have other siblings, but in this in this occasion, leaving you as the only one left does not mean that all of a sudden the miraculously yours is okay. You still went the wrong way. But you know what? People often do that. They try to get rid of the things that bug their conscience. They try to get rid of the reminders of their own sinfulness, their own wickedness. We see it in Cain. Cain says, no, no, I'm just going to get rid of him. I'm just going to kill him. But you know what? When Jesus was here and he was criticizing the Pharisees, you know what he said? He said, which one of the prophets did your forefathers not kill? You look down through Israel's history, and they had a history. Jeremiah was buried in slime up to his armpits because he, because he faithfully declared to them the Word of God that they better turn from their sin or they're going to get carried off into captivity. You know what happened? They didn't turn from their sin, and they got carried off into captivity. 
But, but rather than listen to Jeremiah and repent of their sin and embrace God's covenant with them, they just, let's just get rid of Jeremiah. Let's lock him up. Let's, let's throw him in that pit of slime. And down through the ages, they killed many of their prophets. Why? Just to silence them. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to repent of our sin, and we don't want you reminding us about our sin. So we're just going to get rid of you. And we talked about it a little bit last week right at the end of the message. Remember what we talked about, how Jesus showed us a glimpse of His kingdom. Jesus was here. He was healing the sick. He was feeding the, the hungry. He was uh, raising the dead. He, he, he cured leprosy and the illnesses. He made blind people see, lame people walk. He overcame the curse on the physical world too. As, as He calmed storms and as He walked on water and as He changed water into wine, He did all these amazing things. And they killed Him. Why did they kill Him? If a guy's emptying your hospitals, that's the guy to keep around, right? If a guy can take one boy's lunch and make a soup kitchen out of it, he's a handy person to have around. Jesus would even ask him at one point, for what good deed that I've done are you getting trying to get rid of me? Pilate saw right through all of it. You know, Pilate on at least three different occasions when Christ was being tried before him said, I don't find anything wrong with this guy. And even when he delivered him up to the Jews, he said that he knew it was because of envy that they wanted him killed. Because of envy. We look really good to all these people, except for when he's around. Better get rid of that guy. People still do it today. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. And that, but that's what we see as we look down through history. And even today, if you look around the world, there's Christians being persecuted and, and uh, arrested and put to death. There's people living in dangerous places because of their faith. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus makes that point. He says, So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Well, that's the perspective of a worldview. How do we, what do we learn as we go through this devotionally? Part of it we've already covered in the fact that we need to embrace Jesus Christ because He is the way to God. And so that obviously is our, our first, our forefront, but we've dealt a lot with that coming up to this point. But then there's also this idea of personal responsibility as Cain is called into judgment for his actions. He did it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You need to do it right. And God points that out to him. He says, look, if you do it right, won't you be commended? Won't you get the same pat on the back that Abel got? If you bring what he brought, if you do what he did, and you see that's a problem with a sinful society, is that we want to continue to get the pats on the back while we do it wrong. Rather than repenting of our sin and doing it right in order to be commended by God. Approved of God. But that's exactly what Cain does. Cain's like mad that he's not accepted before God. But he's not going to fix it. He's not going to do it right instead. He's not going to repent and say, you know what, I'm sorry, let me go get a sheep for my brother and bring it back and I'll do it right. But instead, he's clinging to his pride and he's clinging to his arrogance before God. Well, as we see this personal responsibility, we see the opportunity. There's an opportunity here. God, in his mercy, gives Cain the opportunity. He's saying, Cain, look, you did it wrong. Just go do it right. It's kind of like when... uh, Somebody blows an opportunity at school. They don't do their assignment and they go up and tell the teacher, you know what, I, I didn't do it. 
and the teacher and their graciousness and mercy. Not that this always happens, nor should they always give the opportunity. But you know what? The teacher sometimes will say, you know what? If you can have it to me by the weekend, I'll, I'll, I'll look at it. I'll call it good. That's what God does with Cain here. He says, Cain, look, you, you blew it. But you know what? Just, just go back and do it right. Here's an opportunity. Just fix it. You know, so many things happen in our life that way. We, we blow it. And there's an opportunity there before us. Are we going to fix it? Are we going to humble ourselves, repent, and do it right? Ask for forgiveness and move on and, and do it right? Or are we going to be proud and arrogant and offended that we're not accepted and offended that uh, the results are, that are taking place in my life and blame it on other people and be the victim? I think that's what Cain's doing. I think Cain's blaming it on everybody else. Stinking Abel. It's always making me look bad. I think that's why you're getting rid of him. And you see, that's what happens is people blame other people. I remember sitting down with a guy one time and he started telling me all the things that he'd been involved in. And he shared all these things that he'd done with me. And then he turned around and he was like, those cops are just after me. They don't give me a break. They don't... How's a guy fix his life with these guys on you all the time? And I said, look, buddy, I've got to be honest with you. All the things you just shared with me, I want them to get you. You're the kind of person I want off the street. I don't want my kids and grandkids around people you. Now, my hope for you is that we get your life turned around. You can pay your debts, whatever you have to do. You get your life going the right way, and you have a great life. That's my hope for you. If you don't, I want you off the street. But you know what? That's what people do. Blame whoever they're getting compared to. Cain's blaming Abel. People playing the victim. Oh, they got it in for me. They got it. That's a bunch of baloney. You know what? As long as you're the victim in your life, you are doomed to failure. You see, if you're not the victim, if you're the problem, you can fix that. That's a position of power. Because it's adjustments, it's changes that you can make. You can repent. You can change your behavior. You can change your path. As long as you're the victim and it's everybody else who's doing it to you, you'll never change your path. You'll never overcome. Because it's not in your hands. But you know what? You are not the victim. You're the problem. We need to own up to the problem. That's what Cain needed to do. He has an opportunity to own the problem. Repent. Go the right direction. And his life can be good. I've experienced the same thing in my life. I remember when I was 18 years old or even a little before, I was making a mess of my life. Stupidity. And I remember a group of friends telling me, man, you're doing, you're making some stupid moves right here. And I thought, you know what, they're right. And you know what, when I recognized they're right, I recognized it wasn't my parents' fault, it wasn't the school's fault, it wasn't about every other authority that you can think of that I butted heads with. It's not their fault, it's my fault. I'm making stupid choices. And you know what that enabled me to do? Make some good choices and get my life headed in a more positive direction. That's the opportunity that Cain threw away. That's the opportunity we have also. Not only that, the failure. He had that opportunity before him. He threw it away. You know what? It's easier to be angry at somebody else, but it's not helpful. It's easier to point the blame. It's easier, if we go back to Adam and Eve, it's easier to say that woman that you gave me, that's, that's the problem. And then lastly, let's consider it in community. And the reason we're going to consider it in community is because not only do we have a personal responsibility, we have an interpersonal responsibility. God comes to Cain and He says, where's your brother? And what, is, what does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? It's kind of, we always used to joke around, I remember when we were in high school, somebody would say, hey, where's so-and-so? We'd say, it's not my day to watch him. In other words, some, not my response. You're asking the wrong person. 
Why are you asking me? It's not my responsibility. And that's what Cain is doing here. He's saying, look, I'm not my brother's keeper. If anybody's his keeper, that would be, well, that'd be you, wouldn't it? <laughs> You're God. The whole point is, we are. We are our brother's keeper to an extent. Now, I don't mean that you can pry in everybody's business at any whim that you want to. The Bible warns us about that, too. But you know what? The Bible also says if anybody, if you have a brother that, or a sister that's overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual should restore that person. But do it with humility, considering yourself, lest you also fall. Recognize that you have weaknesses, too. Involvement here in church is important because we're part of one another. None of us are islands unto ourselves. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are part of the family of God. We are the children of God. And what parent isn't most pleased when they see all of their kids relating to each other well? And when a brother or a sister stumbles or falls, you go get them. We do have a responsibility, an interpersonal responsibility with one another. That when we have a brother or sister in Christ that looks like they're considering or heading a bad direction, we need to come alongside and not usurp their business or their life, but say, you know what, how can I benefit you? What are you thinking here? Let me help you walk through this. And you bring them back. 